Well, I admit I've taken the way of escape this morning um, and decided to read an exhortation uh, from the book. It's entitled, Meek and Lowly in Heart. The Lord Jesus is described by Isaiah as despised and rejected of men in that famous 53rd chapter. By the Spirit of God, Isaiah also foresaw that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and adds, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus then shared the sadness of the poor, the widow and the fatherless, as well as carrying his own personal stress and grief. We see this well illustrated in this ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, where no less than five miracles are recorded, curing and healing those who had no one to help, those who, in a sense, this world had failed, despised and rejected. Apart from the faint hope that Jesus might cure them, all other hopes were dashed. This chapter opens with the healing of the paralysed man and the parallel records seem to indicate that this man, through the faith of his friends, was brought to Jesus and in order to reach Jesus they had to lower him through the roof. We can imagine, can't we, Jesus speaking as bits and debris of that roof fell down upon them all. The healing of this man, recorded in the early verses of this chapter 9, aroused the anger of the Pharisees. They said in verse 3, This man blasphemeth, because Jesus had said to the paralysed man, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. We note there the parallel that Jesus makes, this connection between illness and sin. It was a challenge to them, wasn't it? Which is easier to say? They couldn't answer, but of course it was easier for him to say, Thy sins are forgiven you. And we know many people today get to hear those very words in the churches they go to. Then later in the chapter, while Jesus was on his way to see the young girl who had already died, there was that touching incident of the poor woman who had suffered so many years and sought so many physicians for help but could never be cured. She felt that if she could just but touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she would be healed, and she was healed instantly. The parallel record tells that Jesus felt the power had gone out of him, though he was at the time surrounded by people. We think again of the words of Isaiah, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We think of the joy of that poor woman. And then to the amazement of the mourners and to the joy of the parents, the young girl, the ruler's daughter, was raised to life. Hardly had Jesus departed out of that house than two blind men followed him, crying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. We note how they identified Jesus as being in the royal line of David. And on this occasion we note that Jesus, as it were, tested their faith. Believe ye that I am able to do this? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord. Both of them were healed instantly. Then Jesus healed the dumb man. But now the Pharisees, because of the nature of the illness, had an excuse to try to discredit the Lord Jesus. Blasphemy, blasphemously, 
They said he did it by being in league with the powers of evil. And we know from the other parallel gospel records the comments of Jesus concerning this, the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. To sum up the wonderful events recorded in Matthew 9, we turn to verse 35. And this seems to sum up, as it were, the whole ministry of Jesus, all that he did. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. No wonder it could be said that in a sense, in a very special sense, the kingdom of God had come in the person of Jesus. The dead were raised, the blind saw, the deaf heard. I like to think that as that little girl was raised, it's a symbol of, of the church being raised. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Truly he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. As we see from Matthew 9, the ruling classes rejected him. And they not only rejected him, they hated him and envied him because of his popularity with the common people, his God of popularity. Because of his words even, of condemnation of them, and because of the miracles that they were unable to perform, but he could perform in such abundance, they envied him. And when we think carefully, the real Christ, the Christ of the New Testament, is rejected just as decisively by the religious leaders today, the rulers of today, although they too pay lip service to his name for the sake of the people. For example, how many of today's religious leaders even know of his commands to his followers that we should not resist evil, that we should love our enemies? How many, we say, are even aware of the aspects of this teaching of Christ, let alone advocate that men and women should practice these teachings in public? As we have said, Jesus shared the sorrows of his people and he suffered the rejection of men and their envy and hatred. And this was a continual feeling all through his ministry. Remember that as Jesus forgave that man's sin, as he healed that man, well, all of the hope that everyone around him had was predicated on Jesus carrying on his mission, on dying for the people that he was speaking to. And the pressure of that, as he forgave sins, as he healed, must have been with Jesus, as it were, knowing what he had to do to make all of this worth something, to justify all their hope in him. The Apostle writes that he had, no, had to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself, but all these things we feel developed his character. And so of Jesus, the Apostle writes, though he were a son... Yet he learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now in Matthew 9 we have the call of Matthew himself, the tax collector, the civil servant, the man who in common with his fellow employees was despised by others because they were in a sense the agents of the Romans, the occupying power. When Matthew obeyed that call and forsook that particular occupation he began by making a feast in his house and called together all of the people he knew and his fellow employees. Others are too to share the meal with him, Jesus. 
Perhaps it was, as it were, a farewell meal as he was planning to leave his life to follow Jesus. Again, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, were so ready immediately to accuse Jesus of impropriety. He's sharing a meal with the hated tax collectors and other sinners, they said. It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto the disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. And his quote from Hosea, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And then he added, For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's such a lesson here for us too, isn't there? We feel that there's possibly a note of irony in those words of Jesus. For the Pharisees weren't really righteous. They were only righteous in their own eyes. They rejected the Son of God whom he sent. They only thought they were righteous. We wonder whether they saw the irony. In fact, they were blind to their real position because they were so smug and so self-righteous in their own eyes, they probably couldn't see their own failings or that they needed help. In fact, they desperately needed help, perhaps even more than the publicans and sinners. We ask ourselves, by way of exhortation, do we have, as it were, a blind spot? Something that we know we do wrong, but but we cover it up, perhaps. Or perhaps we don't see it at all. We don't examine ourselves as we should. It's so easy to see the faults of others and to see others' guilt by association and to be totally blind to our own failings. Well, Jesus knew that it was hopeless to argue with men like the Pharisees and so he could only plead with them on behalf of the publicans and the sinners whom they so despised. Go ye and learn what it meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They were not righteous. I am not come to call the righteous, those who feel they are righteous, the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance, those who know they are sinners and want to change that situation. We must note that particularly Christ came to call sinners to repentance. Not to call sinners that they would carry on sinning and have some sort of sense that they will always be forgiven no matter what they do, but sinners that would truly want to repent and change their lives. The truth, the word of God, should transform our lives. It's a calling of us sinners to repentance. As we have said, this sharing of our sorrows and infirmities and the suffering of the hatred of men had an effect upon Jesus. And this, coupled with his consciousness of the greatness of God and of his mission, made our Lord meek and lowly in heart. No doubt, as we read, he was made strong so that he might cope. And so the knowledge of his own weakness would have also given him that lowliness in heart, that he needed God to make it happen. He came first, as Isaiah foresaw, as the suffering servant of God. And so in Matthew 11.29, Jesus encourages his disciples, including us here, with these words, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, 
and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Wonderful words of comfort. Jesus, the one who is appointed to be our judge at the last day, is described as meek and lowly in heart. Surely this ought to help us when from time to time we contemplate the judgment seat of Christ, which of course we ought to do, because we know how the Apostle tells us that we will all stand there before Christ. But our judge was once in the flesh, and he knows our weaknesses. He's described in the Gospel record, as we have seen, as meek and lowly in heart. And yet he is a great leader of men. How does that compare with other great leaders of men who have walked across this stage of the world? Emperors and great soldiers, generals, and the politicians of today. We know the type of men, fearless in battle or outstanding in some ability or bravery. But not one of them could ever be described as meek or lowly in heart. Yet this is our leader. Very often such men of the world are perfectionists, conscientious, impatient with the failings of others and themselves, but not so Jesus. Remember how he prayed for Peter after he had fallen? I have prayed for thee, he said, that thy faith fail not. Surely those outside could say to us as Christians, I wish that I had your master as my judge. I have heard that he is meek and lowly in heart, and so he is. But on the other hand, the Lord will not be deceived by rogues or traitors. Yet even he meditates to God on behalf of his true brethren and sisters. He knows our weaknesses and he prays on our behalf. As we say, to some extent, it was his rejection by men and his sharing of our suffering which helped him to be meek and lowly in heart. Yes, affliction and trial tend to bring humility. After all, it's humble hearts that God is seeking. So perhaps we should take comfort if our numbers seem few and if few seem to respond to our preaching when we feel low. Perhaps there are not many humble hearts left. Perhaps there are few labourers to find them. Today's world, with all its emphasis on self-assertiveness and aggressiveness, hardly encourages humility. As we say, we can see the effect of all these things on our Lord in developing his beautiful character. But in the past and since the days of Jesus, so many of the servants of God have had to learn humility by the things which they have suffered, sometimes terribly. At present we are reading concerning the experiences of the early life of David, who in so many ways foreshadowed his greatest son, Jesus. We think back to those very early times of the life of David, when Samuel came to anoint the future king. David was not called at all. He was left outside to look after the sheep, being the youngest. Can we imagine the shock in that particular family when he was the one who was chosen? Yes, his brothers despised him when they came to the army to bring when he came to the army to bring food for them and when he saw Goliath and became full of the spirit of god his brothers despised him just as jesus brethren despised him they said we remember that he was mad we know that david the shepherd boy took his life in his hands and faced goliath in the name of the lord but our lord david's greatest son faced and overcame a giant more terrible than that goliath of gath 
He gave his life in overcoming that terrible, evil, looming giant, sin in the flesh. Thinking of David, just for a moment. If Saul had died immediately after David had slain Goliath, and David had been made king at that time of exaltation and victory, would David have coped with such elevation without becoming proud? When we look at the later life of David, we notice his serious lapses occurring, not in times of affliction, but in times of prosperity, in kingship and in peace. We, God knew David and God knows us. It wasn't as easy as that. With David, it was very much a case of the cross before the crown. We think there of Jesus, don't we? With asking the blind men not to tell of what he had done for them discouraging so many times the the speaking of, of the deeds which he did that he might remain hidden as it were lowly what sort of experiences then came upon this young man this youth David they were terrifying experiences in our reading today from the first of Samuel 20 David said to Jonathan but truly as the Lord liveth as I soul liveth There is but a step between me and death. David had to endure the implacable hatred and envy of Saul, the most powerful man in that land, who was nevertheless the Lord's anointed. What grief this must have caused David, knowing that Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was the one who had been chosen to lead Israel into battle, and yet now was turned to be his enemy, not by David's choice. That chapter opens with the words, And David fled from Naoth and Ramah. He fled for his life. But in those very early days of David's affliction and distress, there was one consolation, his beautiful friendship with Jonathan. I'm sure all of us followed that reading with our brother as we viewed again that wonderful friendship in the Lord. We today have some companionship in the truth of so many fellow pilgrims. This is where we should always seek our true companionship among those who try to serve God. In times of joy and hardship, we need our fellow pilgrims and they need us. Perhaps even more so in times of prosperity and ease. Jesus too had just a few faithful companions. To them he once said, Ye are they who have continued with me in my temptations. Yes, even when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, they didn't forsake him, not until that rabble came, and then, alas, their faith failed. David wrote, I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. So we have again read how Jonathan secretly warned David to flee, and how they made that covenant together, and how Jonathan decided to allay suspicion by going into a field secretly with a young lad, as though to practice his skill at archery all prearranged that Jonathan would shoot those arrows beyond the rock, Ezel, where David was hiding. Now the name of that rock or stone is significant. It means the rock that shapeth or showeth the way. And that was a turning point in the life of David. Literally, we understand, the Hebrew can mean a stone of departure. This stone easel then was a turning point in the life of David. From that time onwards he was to suffer severe affliction. It was indeed the stone of departure. 
His temporary life at the court of Stuhl was to come to an end, and it was a turning point as he began life as an outcast, despised and rejected, and only once more in his life would he see Jonathan, just before Jonathan died. We know that David's friendship with Jonathan came to an end in the premature death of Jonathan, but it had to be in the wisdom of God. Perhaps similarly, Jesus on one occasion had to mourn the premature death of a faithful servant of God when John the Baptist, who had baptised him in the beginning in Jordan, came to his end, or perhaps later Lazarus. Thinking then of David and that moving covenant with Jonathan, as we say, there followed for David very distressing times. In chapter 21, having fled in desperation to the king of Gath, the Philistine, which seems an odd choice really, David was nearly executed by the Philistines as he had to resort to feigning madness in order to save himself, or so it seems to David. But unaware, though David was of it, there was an angel there. Now the 34th Psalm is David's record of his prayer and song of thanksgiving after he had been delivered from Gath. It was God who saved him. If we turn to that psalm, we can share some of his thoughts and perhaps apply them to ourselves in our lives. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Why? Because David had been delivered. How many times, perhaps unbeknown to us we have been delivered from trial or trouble or evil or circumstance because of our prayers to God verse 4 I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears yes no doubt David offered earnest prayers continually in Gath when he was almost slain verse 6 this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no one to them that fear him. We think of David and Gath praying to God and God granting him that deliverance through the unseen angel of the Lord. David's trials and afflictions very often mirror those of Christ. Many times David just escaped. For example, later in the wilderness of Moan, David was nearly captured. He found himself trapped on a hillside with soldiers advancing on all sides and there was no escape. They were closing in. Then at that critical moment, a breathless messenger arrived with the message for Saul that the Philistines had invaded. And at that point, Saul had no alternative but to divert his soldiers against the Philistines. And again, David was saved. Only just. It's just enough though, isn't it? As we have seen from that 34th Psalm, David's experiences not only brought him humility, but they also gave him tremendous confidence in God. That confidence that comes from being only just saved, from having to go through the temptations and the trials that we have to go through in our lives. Surely that is the exhortation to us this morning. To have this tremendous confidence in God, 
confidence that if we trust him and commit our way to him, then nothing can happen to us outside the will of God. Confidence, not presumption. Confidence in judgment, knowing that our judge in his mortal life bore our sicknesses and sorrows, that he fully understands us, that he fully knows our weaknesses, and he is the one who is described as meek and lowly in heart, making intercession for us. Now, as we've said, in certain ways the early experiences of David foreshadow those of Christ. He was rejected, he had to flee, he was persecuted. Many times he only just escaped. Jesus had similar experiences. We know that on a number of occasions the people sought to kill him, on one occasion taking him to the brow of a hill from which they intended to cast him down headlong, and he passed through their midst. How often Jesus, like David, must have felt forsaken and alone. We read that it was for envy that he was delivered up finally, and it was the envy of Saul that pursued David. Well, David was saved, as we have recounted, at the very last moment. We see then, in the lives of the servants of God, that affliction should bring humility, that we will be saved at the last moment. But on the other hand, if we look on the other side of the coin, as it were, prosperity seems to be very dangerous to the servants of God. And this is borne out all through the scriptures. When David was king, it was then that he made his very serious lapse before God. We now live in times of relative prosperity. And prosperity isn't furthering the cause of the truth at all, but it's producing the exact conditions required for the return of Christ. As it was in the days of Lot, they planted, they builded, they ate, they drank until we are now seeing a pleasure crazed generation a carefree world immersed in its own activities and prosperity a world which will be caught totally unawares by the sudden return of jesus that gives us a responsibility as we read in matthew being the laborers that take in the harvest we've then to take the warning of the words of jesus to watch living as we do in such spiritually dangerous environment we've reminded ourselves that despite all his wonderful miracles of healing jesus was still despised and rejected especially by the rulers who should have known better just as those forces of evil compassed david about so jesus knew that one day he too would be trapped and for him there would be no escape there would be no last minute reprieve there would be no sudden message to Pilate to release him and depart for our lord knew there would be no escape. He had to face the brutality of men. He had to face the power of sin head-on and triumph. As the forces of sin then closed upon Jesus, as we remember now in the emblems upon the table, he resisted the temptation to sin. Never once did he sin. And even as he died upon the cross, he held at bay sinfulness. He died, as we know, as the perfect sacrifice for us, for our sins. With what joy and praise we should thank God that Jesus has indeed gone ahead as our forerunner. He has broken through the barrier of sin and death and opened the way to eternal life. As we think of Jesus now in the emblems, let us see the real Jesus, the afflicted, the meek and the lowly in heart. Let us renew our vows that we will be his disciples.